Okay, in the coming weeks and months, we're all going to be hearing so much about Hurricane Katrina and why the government's response was so abysmal. And already, the blame shifting is like this price fight that's already in its third or fourth round. Already, we've heard officials try to shrug off any attempts at accountability by saying that it's too soon, by saying they're not going to play the blame game. And before the million details and arguments and counterarguments start to make all of our heads woozy, I would just like to repeat here something that was talked about very briefly this week. One of the things that seems so fundamental, that seems to cut through a lot of the supposed debate that's happening and end it definitively, is so much so that when I would see people on TV posturing and trotting out the talking points, I kept wanting to go back and say, no, 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 don't forget this thing. It has to do with the biggest argument out there right now, whether the federal government was in fact supposed to be in charge of rescuing people and getting food and water and all that into New Orleans. It's come up a lot. Like when the head of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff, was asked by Tim Russell to meet the press, since you knew the storm was coming, why didn't you get buses and trains and planes and trucks in there to evacuate? Chertoff said it wasn't his job. Tim, the, the way that, that, that Emergency Operations Act under the, under the law is the responsibility and the, the power, the authority, rests with state and local officials. This idea that it was state and local officials who were the ones who blew it, not the feds. This idea is all over the place, from the talking heads on TV to Rush Limbaugh. What we had down there was an eminent failure of state and local government. We had incompetence in the mayor's office, incompetence in the governor's office. And sure, it is clear, even this early, that there are plenty of things that state and local government did to screw things up. But here's this thing that I read this week, this thing that that I kept thinking about all week. It, It really comes down to a couple of basic facts. The governor of Louisiana declares a state of emergency the Friday before the storm hits, right? Calls on the federal government to step in. Then President Bush officially declares the state of emergency in Louisiana the next day, Saturday before the storm, and authorizes the Federal Emergency Management Agency to act. You can read the paper where he does this on the White House website. Basically, that should have settled who was in charge. After that happened, there was plenty of authority. There was all the authority in the world. We checked out this idea that from that point, the federal government was in fact in charge. We checked that out with several different experts and consultants on these issues this week, and they all agreed that the law is unambiguous. Uh, This particular guy is William Nicholson, author of the books Emergency Response and Emergency Management Law and Homeland Security Law and Policy. And if you're into Homeland Security Policy, you might want to check those out. He says that once the governor asks for help and the president declares a state of emergency, the feds basically have the broad powers to do what's necessary. And he says, even if the president hadn't declared a state of emergency, the head of the Department of Homeland Security, Chertoff, could have acted. There's this whole newfangled way for him to take emergency powers under something called the National Response Plan. Well, basically, the way it works is the Secretary of Homeland Security designates this as a as a catastrophic uh, incident and federal resources deploy to preset uh, federal locations or staging areas and so they don't even have to have a local or state declaration in order to uh, move forward with this in other words it doesn't matter what the governor says it doesn't matter what the local people say basically once that happens they can just go ahead and do what what needs to be done to fix the problem. That's correct. It's utterly clear that they had the authority to preposition assets and to significantly accelerate the federal response. And they didn't need to wait for the state. They did not need to wait for the state.
Remember, you heard it here first. Remember, you heard it at all. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, we have stories in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. One of the things that all of us who work on the radio show thought we could do today during this hour is give people who were in the storm more time than daily news shows could give to tell their stories and talk about what happened, talk about what they're thinking now. We have somebody who was at the convention center who tells, among other things, the story that her mom wants you to hear. Plus, one thing she says is being widely misreported and misunderstood in the coverage of the convention center and what happened there. We also have somebody who police prevented from leaving the city. And we have a teenager who explains just what it actually feels like to go without water for two days. And more. Stay with us. Act one, middle of somewhere. Well, when Denise Moore finally made her way out of New Orleans, she had been at the convention center, she was surprised to see the coverage. I kept hearing the word animal, and I didn't see animals. We were trapped like animals, but I saw the greatest humanity I've ever seen from the most unlikely places. Denise Moore eventually ended up at the convention center with her mom, her niece, and her niece's two-year-old daughter. But the day before the storm, because Denise's mom worked at Memorial Hospital in New Orleans, and because hospital employees are allowed to stay there during hurricanes, all of them went to the hospital. They were given a room to stay in, but later they were kicked out of the room for two white nurses. Yeah, so I got really mad, mm-hmm. you know, so I went home. And um, so I went to, went to the house. I set up my twin bed in the hallway. The hallway supposedly structurally is the best place to be when, if the building's going to be moving around if, if there's high wind. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and good thing I did. Somewhere around 5 o'clock in the morning, I jumped up out of bed. The ceiling started crashing down around me. I was riding that bed like a horse. I was so scared. I had never been that scared for that long. We lived on the second floor, so I was scared it was going to fall through. That even in the hallways, that the building was swaying so much that I'd fall through the floor and end up injured down there, and nobody would find me. And um, next thing I know, the water is pouring through the ceiling. <laughs> I was like, "Well," and people were calling on the phone. You should have stayed at the hospital. It was ridiculous. I was scared, fearing for my life for eight full hours. My heart was in my throat. I was like, "Oh no! When this is over, I'm coming back to the hospital." And so I went back to the hospital. Can I ask you, before you you tell what happens next, why not just evacuate? Well, first of all, my mom is essential personnel, so she couldn't leave. I don't have a car, so I couldn't leave. Um, My niece was going to go with her mother, but we didn't want them to get trapped on the highway in the storm with the baby. Mm -hmm. So we thought it would be safer to just stay at the hospital because we rode out the last hurricane at home, but we sent my niece to the hospital with her baby. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's just been the way it goes. The hospital was the safest place to be if you were going to stay in the city. So, so you walk back to the hospital, and what do you find there? Well, there's a lot of people roaming around with their kids, and we're sharing food, and we're having a good old time, just waiting for a, a chance to go back home. Mm-hmm. Then the, then the um, levees broke. And the next morning, I was able to go back to the house because I wanted to pick up my degrees. I earned them. 
<laughs> mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure they weren't wet. And frankly, I was looking for a carton of cigarettes that I knew was in that house somewhere. And so did you find the cigarettes? I found the cigarettes. And were they dry? <laughs> and I found my degrees, and mm-hmm. I grabbed my vital papers, my Social Security card. My None of that was wet because it was in a little purse. And um, I brought my vital papers back to the hospital, and my mom and Sydney were going to go back to the house to go get theirs. But the water started rising. So within a couple of hours, you weren't able to get back to the house. You know, it just kept rising. We we thought, okay, now we're trapped in here, and we don't know how high this water's going to get. Mm-hmm. So it finally covered the basement, so the generators went out. Covered the first floor. And when you say covered the first floor, was it actually coming inside the hospital building? Yeah. Yeah. So the heartbreaking thing was watching them turn people away who had waded through that water to get to the hospital for safe haven. It was amazing. It was heartbreaking. How often did you see that? You know, that happened over and over again. The The person who sticks out most in my mind is a man who had his wife and his two children and his baby and his daughter were so dehydrated. The people were yelling at him, you can't come in here. And and so the people, we were on the um, smoking patio, which was on the second floor, and so we saw them, and we were yelling at him, man, leave the baby, man, leave the baby. And um, he was like, I can't leave my baby. We don't have a house. We can't. How am I going to find my baby if I leave him with you? I don't know where you're going to take him. And been in this water for two days, and you know it was it was devastating to just see that. And then we knew that nobody was going to be able to come up in there. And so the people on the smoking um, balcony, we would like throw them water, and we we try to throw them food. And and where'd they send him to? I don't know. We don't know where he went. But I did find out later that they were letting in people with gunshot wounds and snake bites. So it wasn't like they turned everybody away. It was just that I guess they were thinking, we got 3,000 people in this hospital we have to evacuate. We cannot take on any more responsibility, you know. Yeah. So I understood why they had to turn them away. It was just, it was just heartbreaking to see. Yeah. So so you were in the hospital until, and there's no power in the hospital, but there's water, and it sounds like there's food, too. We didn't have water um, after that first night. Oh, really? Yeah, we ran out of everything, um, you know, because people were sharing with each other, and we just thought we'd be able to go home in a minute. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like you survived the hurricane. I was a happy camper because I had been more scared than I had ever been in my life, and I walked out of there, you know, so who knew? So how long were you in the hospital? How many days? When did you get out? Two days, and then we were transported to that corner. And what we heard is that we were going to be dropped off by boat to a corner, and the buses would pick us up, and we would be heading to Texas. Mm -hmm. That's what we were told. And then the buses come, and and they take you where? It wasn't buses. It was the police had to commandeer vehicles. They were asking people in the crowd if they knew how to drive trucks and buses. They were stealing them. The -hmm. police had to steal vehicles. And so it was totally different than what we anticipated. Wait, so wait, wait. They're, they're just taking any random, like, truck and, 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 and hot Ooh, wiring buses. it? Yeah. And, and so what was the vehicle that, that you got to the next place in? Like, what, what were you in? There was a key and lock van. Uh, uh, right, locksmith. Yeah. Yeah. That happened to be driving around, and the police made him start taking us. And, and then you go to, uh, to where? We go to the convention center. And when we arrived, um, there were people all on the street 
under the bridge, and we were like, why are these people on the street? Why aren't they in the convention center? And when we got there, people were saying, you don't want to go in there. Did you go inside at all? Not until the next day. What'd you see? Inside? Yeah. A sewer. A sewer, literally, because I had to use the bathroom. And I was like, where's the bathroom? So I went inside, the whole place was a bathroom. Stepping in feces, stepping in urine, all over the carpets. I mean, I used to work at the convention center. It was just, that was hard to see. Hmm. It was a beautiful building. And it, it, it was it, it was a toilet. And people were sitting close as they could to the doors, but the smell was overwhelming. So, so like, then what, what's, what do you do? Like, what's the best you can do? I actually stopped eating the minute we got there. I wouldn't eat or drink anything. Because I figure if you don't put nothing in, nothing's coming out. I was in the Army. <laughs> but yeah. even at that, I still had to use the bathroom. It was ridiculous. So what I ended up doing was getting a cup, going behind a partition, having a guy guard me while I was um, relieving myself in a cup behind some partition in the convention center. Yeah. And I got all kind of stuff on my feet. And thank God it started raining because I have a really sensitive nose. I was sitting down and I could smell a crap on my feet. And where'd you all sleep? We slept on the sidewalk. This place, there was trash all over the ground outside, and I was thinking, how are the girls going to even lay down with their babies? There's not a spot that's clean. Nothing. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere to lay down. Mm-hmm. You know? And then what my mom wanted me to make sure I tell you, what they kept doing the whole time was tell us to line up for the buses that never came. It was like they were doing drills every four hours. You all have to line up for the bus, and if you bum rush the bus... They're just going to take off without you, and nobody's going to get to go anywhere. You have to line up. You have to be in a straight line. We're talking about old people in wheelchairs and women with babies in lines waiting for buses that you know goddamn well aren't coming. Like they were playing with us. I figured it out early in the morning, but what am I supposed to do, make an announcement? The buses aren't coming. And so I walked up to the so-called head guy in charge of our section, and I told him, I said, why do you have these people sitting out here in this sun? And you know these buses aren't coming. The buses are coming. I said, you're just playing with us. Who gives you the authority to keep lining us up like this, to stand in this heat? He was like, well, I know the guy who can make the call for the buses. I said, well, why hasn't he called them? People are dying. He said, I wish I could tell you what you wanted to hear. I said, I want to hear the truth. Are the buses coming or not? We need to get these old people and these babies out of this heat. And then he just walked away. And we were left there without help, without food, without water, without sanitary conditions, as if it's perfectly all right for these animals to reside in a freaking sewer like rats. Because there was nothing but black people back there. Yeah. And disposable. And then the story became... They left us here to die. They're going to kill us. You mean that's what people were saying to each other? Yeah. And is that what you believed? I was almost convinced. That, that basically... Because I kept having a vision of them opening that floodgate on us. Mm-hmm. Of my niece and her baby floating away from me, screaming. Hmm. And I just knew it. And then the next morning, um, I heard from somebody that they actually were going to open that floodgate. So... By the time the rumor started that the National Guard was going to kill us, and I, I almost halfway believed it. And, and so people were saying, basically, they just brought us here, they're going to leave us here to die? Yeah, that's what we thought. The police kept passing us by, 
And the National Guard kept passing us by with their guns pointed at us. And because they, they wouldn't, when you see a truck full of water and people have been crying for water for a day and a night, and the water truck passes you by, just keeps going, how are we supposed to believe these people were here to help us? It was almost like they were taunting us. And then, don't forget, they kept lining us, us, us up for buses that never showed up. Yeah. We thought they were playing with us. And that best-case scenario and the worst-case scenario, they wanted us to either kill each other or die. <laughs> or they were going to kill us. So, so we, we keep hearing in the news about, uh, about violence inside the convention center and people getting killed and women being raped. Did you know about any of that when you were there? The convention center is section A through J, I believe. Mm-hmm. We were about at H. And we could hear kind of craziness going on on the further ends in either direction. But where we are was mostly old people and women with children. And I didn't see anybody get raped. I did see people die. I saw one man die, and I saw a girl and her baby die. But I didn't, I didn't see anybody getting hurt. And 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 talk about now. There were men, uh, just kind of like roaming with guns, uh, packs of men, and uh, just they just... were securing the area. Criminals. These guys were criminals. They were. You know, yeah. But somehow these guys got together, figured out who had guns, and decided they were going to make sure that that no women were getting raped because we did hear about the women getting raped in the Superdome, and mm-hmm. you know that nobody was hurting babies and nobody was hurting these old people. They were the ones getting juice for the babies. They were the ones getting clothes for people who had walked through that water. They were the ones fanning the old people because that's what moves the guys, the gangster guys, the most. The plight of the old people, that's what haunts me the most, seeing those old people sitting in them chairs and not being able to get up and walk around or nothing. Mm-hmm. And so these were just guys from the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. What else were they doing? They started looting on St. Charles and um, St. Charles and Napoleon. There was a Rite Aid there. And, they, you know, you would think that they would be stealing stuff that, you know, fun stuff or whatever, because it's a free city, according to them, right? But they were taking juice for the baby, water beer for the older people, food, mm-hmm. um, raincoats so that they could all be seen, you know, by each other and stuff. And, you know, I thought it was pretty cool and very well organized. <laughs> and, and, and did you see this yourself? These guys yeah, go I was off? right there. And, and so basically they went off to this Rite Aid, they got the stuff, they brought it back and started distributing it? Mm-hmm. Like Robin Hood? Yeah, exactly like Robin Hood. And that's why I got so mad because they're calling these guys animals. These guys. That's what got to me. Because I know what they did. Yeah. You calling these people animals? You know, come on. And I saw what they did, and I was really touched by it, and I liked the way that they were organized about it and that they were thoughtful about it because they had families they couldn't find, too. Yeah. You know, and that they would put themselves out like that on other people's behalf. You know, I never had a real high opinion of thugs myself. But I'll tell you one thing, I'll never look at them the same way again. Why didn't people just walk away? That's that's what I don't understand. Couldn't we weren't you just... allowed. The, the police, If you, people kept trying to go up the bridge so they could go to Algiers. Mm-hmm. And they'd be turned away. And they'd, they'd be, 
they'd be sent back down. And literally, they would just like go a couple streets away, and somebody would send them back. They'd go up the bridge, right, to go across to the West Bank where it was dry, right. And lights were on, <laughs> you know. And um, the National Guard was up there with guns. They turned them back with guns, and the governor gave orders to shoot to kill. You couldn't get through them. Yeah. So people would go up the bridge every time they lined us up for the buses, and the buses wouldn't come. People in groups would go up the bridge trying to get across the river. People who had family across the river couldn't get across the river. They were not letting us out of there. They wasn't letting nobody in. So we were trapped. I I can't even express it. Yeah. The tears get close to my eyes, and I have this feeling in the pit of my stomach, like if I start crying, the sobs will kill me. I guess someday it'll calm down and I'll be able to just cry like a normal person. But I feel like if I started crying, I'd never stop. Denise Moore, she's now in Baton Rouge. She's okay. She's just found a new job there. If it keeps on raining, going to break. If it keeps on raining, going to break. And the water going to come and have no place to stay. Act two, forgotten but not lost. Let's return to that bridge. You know that bridge that Denise talked about in Act One, that people got to the bridge and they were turned back by armed police officers. What exactly happened on that bridge? We wondered about that. And so in this act, we return to that bridge. The people in this story were in New Orleans for a paramedics convention. They're out of towners. They were staying in a hotel in the French Quarter. And as the storm approached, there were no flights out of the city. There were no rental cars available. And so they stayed in their hotel. Luckily, their hotel let them stay. No electricity, eating box cereal, canned soup, whatever they had there in the hotel. And then three days after Katrina hit, one of the hotel managers actually decided to take matters into his own hands and took up a collection from his guests to raise $25,000 to charter a bunch of private buses to get these people out. And so all that day, guests were getting reports. The buses are coming and all these reports. And they were told to line up and wait for the buses. And then like five or six hours after they were told to line up and wait, around midnight, they heard word that, no, the bus has been commandeered by the military as they entered the city. Okay, so the next morning, the hotel's out of food, they're out of water. They basically said, everybody, you got to go now. Laurie Beth Slonsky and her husband, Larry Bradshaw, they're both paramedics from San Francisco, they set off with about 200 other hotel guests that morning for the command center that the police had set up down the street at Harris Casino. So they go there and they ask the police, what should they do now? Laurie Beth talked to producer Alex Bloomberg. You know, they said, you can't go to the Superdome. You cannot go to the convention center. We said, where can we go? They said, we don't know. You are on your own. Mm -hmm. And that's where we decided, let's camp in front of the police command center in front of Harrods. There would be protection. We'd have each other until the next day. Then um, the police command center realized they had an issue on their hand. They have 200 tourists in front of their command center. Mm -hmm. So he said... Wait, I just heard word. If you cross the bridge, there are buses. And a big cheer went up. But Larry, being um, the realist that he is, said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have been lied to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Today is Thursday. We really would like some guarantee that this is true. And he looked, looked us in the eye and said, I swear to you, there are buses on the bridge. I just got word. Now, where is the bridge at this point from where you're standing? 
It's two miles through town. It's called the Poncha Train Expressway. Okay. So the 200 of us little tourist types with our pull-along baggage um, made our way through the rainy weather. Are you, and you're all carrying your pull-along baggage? I'm still carrying my pull-along baggage <laughs> with our laptop and our little Palm Pilot and our little extra food and everything. Uh-huh. So we are going through town, and people saw us and thought, hmm, you know, here come some folks. They must know something. So our numbers doubled from probably 200, and then it doubled again. So we were probably about 800 to 1,000 people marching up to the bridge. When we got to the bridge, there was the armed Gretna sheriffs, and they had formed a line at the foot of the bridge. Uh-huh. So even before we could even explain what we wanted or what we had heard, that's when they began firing the weapons. Gretna police shot at us and said, get away, get away. You cannot come on the bridge. This bridge goes across the Mississippi River to a town called Gretna in neighboring Jefferson Parish. The entire region across the river is called the West Bank. Debbie Zielinski, a 24-year-old sales agent from Boston, was another guest at the Monteleone. She'd been on vacation in New Orleans with a group of five, her friends Sharon and Rashida, Rashida's mother and 13-year-old brother, and Rashida's brother's 15-year-old friend. The cops were just firing into the air to get people back. They had guns pointed in people's faces, telling them to get back down or they will shoot you. And what was your thinking at that moment? What were you, what were you, what, what, did, what did you make of that? What, you know, like, what, what were you thinking? At that point, it was pouring rain. Uh, we were soaked through. Um, I thought, I'm never getting out of here. If I am getting out of here, it's not going to be alive. Uh, tears started rolling down my face at that point. And how did it just sounds so crazy to me that there's like there's like a bunch of tired people trying to walk out of a city and and people are shooting at that. Did it just seem insane to you, or what? What we you know what it, I mean? It did. I mean, here you have a six-lane highway bridge, and there's barely any traffic going out, and you won't let pedestrians cross it? Uh, why? What did I really think? Or do you want... Okay. Yeah, what did you really think? What I thought was, are they serious? They must be mistaken. They could not be shooting at a group of desperate-ass people. But apparently, they were serious. But we were so desperate. We know we know we got to get out of here. This is our only way out. We can't go to the Superdome. We can't go to the convention center. We were scared to death of all the for our lives and for the people around us' lives that we had to approach them. So my partner Larry uh, had his badge with him, his fire department badge. So he would raise it up, lay it on the ground, put our hands up, and walk backwards and say, "May we approach?" Mm-hmm. And um, when we approached and had them in conversation, the sheriff informed us, said there were no buses, that the police commander had lied to us. And when Larry questioned, it's like, can we just ask you why we can't cross the bridge? Because there was no traffic. There was very little traffic on the six-lane highway. And they said that you are not crossing this bridge. We are not turning the West Bank into another Superdome. And to us, when they said that, was absolutely these were code words for if you're poor and you're black, you are not getting out of New Orleans. You are not coming to our territory. 
it, it does seem hard to avoid sort of talking about race here. Yes. We're white, and uh, everybody else uh, that, not every, most every other person was African American. And that is what they saw. And that is what they were responding to, that this group of people of color were not going to come into their neighborhoods. Lori Beth is kind of a take-charge person uh-huh. from what we saw, and we were like, well, we need to stick with someone. We don't know our way, what we're going to do. So we decided, hey, we're sticking with you. We're, we're not leaving you. <laughs> and glad we didn't. <laughs> Our small group of eight, and um, and then other folks as well, we retreated back down Highway 90, and we were trying to find some shelter in the overpass. And then we had these discussions, God, what are we going to do? And what we decided to do was there was this <clears throat> concrete embankment. There, if you go on to um, the middle of Pontchartrain Expressway, there's a center divide. But with the center divide, there was two hunks of concrete that sort of make a nice enclave. And we thought, this will be perfect. It's safe and will be visible to everyone. And certainly someone's going to come rescue us and that we'll have security by being on this elevated freeway. And then we could wait for these buses that were certainly going to come get us. This group turned into about, I'd say, about 60 or 70 people. Mm -hmm. And we cleaned up the area so it was safe for the children and someone had a bag and we cleaned that up and um, I said I had water and someone else had water and we you know kind of made like this community and this is when somebody blessed are the people who loot got a huge water truck they had stolen and he had a, a man and his wife and killed child and they were African American and they unloaded all the water that they had. So wait, so so a guy came up, a guy just came up to you. A guy was escaping New Orleans and that's what it felt like. People were escaping New Orleans and he drove up to the middle road in the middle of this Pontchartrain expressway, drove right up to our encampment because he, he saw like 70, 80, 90 people and he just took all the water out and gave it to us and then filled his the truck up back with human beings. As many older and children that we could get on with their parents onto this, and they drove away. And that is how we got water. And what did he say to you? What did he, what, that's incredible. Good what luck, did he say? Good luck, brothers and sisters. Good luck. We wish you the best. We can only take what we can take. And we, you know, thanked him, and off they go with the families. And, and then up the street quite a way, there is a... Army, a National Guard truck that apparently took too sharp of a turn, and you can just see the food fall out of the sea rations fall out of this truck. So, I mean, it just felt like it was phenomenal. We commandeered a couple of the strong young guys and gals to run up there in the shopping carts that people had and gather up the boxes of food and bring it back. So, so you're set. You have, you we have were food, set. you have water. We were we had food, we had water, we had some sort of shelter, we had a safe place for the kids, and then the kids um, took the plastic that the water was in, those big plastic containers that hold five-gallon drums of water, and brought it over to like a storm drain and set it up to make bathroom with pri- pri- privacy, 
and we took one of the five-gallon containers of water, and the kids made a sign, because we still had luggage at this point, and crayons and things, and made a sign, please keep the bathroom clean, and we had toilet paper and handy wipes. So you'd started with like a group of eight, and then it grew to like 70, and these were... Who were some of the stories of the people who were in this little encampment with you? Well, there was this um, older woman who was diabetic and had soiled herself, but people came forward with, you know, like a makeshift Depends diaper type thing. And then there was like a just the cutest ding-dang kids that would call me auntie, and uh, they would be, auntie, auntie wants the coffee, and... And they were very strict about the garbage because we hung garbage bags on the rebar. So we were set up brilliantly until just as it started to turn dark. Um, a Gretna sheriff came up and just had that crazy look that as a paramedic, when I see that crazy look, you just find a way to to not come in front of that energy because he had a gun and he was pointing and screaming at us, get the f*** off this freeway, get the f*** off this freeway, like the most insane, crazed, frightened person ever. And um, we had to leave this place of safety. Um, and uh, went into the dark. And it was martial law by this point. And we had heard it was a shoot-to-kill policy. So everyone grabbed what they could, and we didn't know where we were going. As we were walking, we turned back and looked. And then you saw a helicopter come very close, and everything that we had had in there actually went flying as the helicopter's wind took off. So like a, uh, like a police helicopter literally came down to where your camp had been and blew everything away? Right. And you, and you think that was, that was on, on purpose? Oh, yeah. Uh, so we walked down the bridge off the highway, and we actually found a bus, an abandoned bus. Uh, we had to actually... <laughs> we had to boost someone into a window because the door was locked, and he unlocked the door from the inside. We all got in. It was right at dark. It was becoming dark outside. Uh, we all were told to lay down on the seat and do not lift your head for anything. Who told you that? Uh, my friend's mom. Okay. She's like, don't, don't sit up. Don't lift your head. I don't care what you hear. What was the, what was the fear? Uh, the fear was you could hear gunshots getting closer. You could hear people walking. Uh, it was a fear of the gunshots. It was also a fear of the police. Um, we were afraid they'd come. They they would probably kick us out. And we didn't want to be out when it was dark out. You could hear the, I don't know if they were rats, if what they were, but they were outside and you could hear them. I think I maybe slept five or ten minutes. Uh, the minute the sun came up, we were out of there. We left the bus. We left a note in the bus uh, saying thank you, we're sorry, uh, and we left. We went up to the bridge to see if they'd let us cross. 
Larry had contacted the president of our union um, and said, "Okay, we are in our in the, at the fire department." Um, John Mead and said, "Okay, John, honest to God, it is now dire. We need to get out." And somehow, John, through the other union, through a guy who works at Menlo Park, who was working for FEMA. Somehow one of those connections happened that the FEMA person got to tell the Gretna police or sheriff to, yes, let us eight people go through. And um, it was so early in the morning, but we could see the people starting to come up because people were trying to still get out. And as people were coming up, one of the sheriffs walked down the ramp a bit and shot up past some people and said, do not approach. Um, I, 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 we got past that. We got the permission. We walked across the bridge. That must've been a very, that must've been a very, um, I mean, on the one hand, you must've been ex- thrilled to be getting out, but was it was it very a little hard? Yeah. Very demoralized, very sad, very unfair. It's really wrong. This makes no sense. All of us should be walking across that bridge, and it's only by this connection, that connection, and um, that we were able to get across. How did I feel? I felt really incensed in anger that other people weren't allowed to pass, and at the same time, I felt so fortunate and absolute, like I won the lottery. Um, that us eight were able to cross. There was one more hurdle, actually. In the group of eight, three were white, four were black, Sharon, Rashida, and her mother and brother. And her brother's friend was Puerto Rican. But the authorities had told Larry that only his immediate family was allowed to cross the bridge. So Larry said, this is my immediate family. Uh, I was his daughter. Uh, My friend's mom was his sister-in-law with her three kids. And my friend's brother's friend was his foster child. <laughs> and that's how we had to play it off in order for us to cross the bridge all together. Debbie Zelinsky and Lori Beth are now back home in San Francisco and Boston, respectively. They talked to Alex Bloomberg. This time I'm walking to New Orleans. I'm walking to New Orleans. I'm going to need to pay get through walking me blues when I get back to New Orleans I've got my suitcase in my hand Coming up, Fox TV versus a New Orleans 18-year-old That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues.
This is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today's program, After the Flood, New Orleans Stories in the Aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. We've arrived at Act 3 of our show, Act 3, Social Studies Lesson. TV talk show host Bill O'Reilly stated rather directly this week the lessons that he thought conservatives and everybody else should take from the devastation. First, he said, you can't rely on government. And second, he said, the problems that we saw in New Orleans weren't about race. They were about class. If you're poor, you're powerless, not only in America, but everywhere on Earth. If you don't have enough money to protect yourself from danger, danger is going to find you. The aftermath of Hurricane Katrina should be taught in every American school. If you don't get educated, if you don't develop a skill and force yourself to work hard, you'll most likely be poor. And sooner or later, you'll be standing on a symbolic rooftop waiting for help. Chances are that help will not be quick in coming. Well, our producer Alex Bloomberg decided to run this by somebody who is actually in an American high school, 18-year-old Ashley Nelson, who is our next act and who lives in the Lafitte Housing Projects in New Orleans in one of the neighborhoods that got flooded. That's what he said? Yeah. He said that. On TV, yeah. <laughs> to you, what's the thing that stands out most about that? Basically, he's saying if you're rich, you live, you're poor, you die. And, and I, I had no idea that it was a crime to be poor. And the punishment was death. What was the first that you heard about the hurricane, and what, what preparations did you make? When I heard about the hurricane, it was... Saturday, and you know it was supposed to come next Sunday night. So when I heard about it, I went over to my grandmother's house, and my whole family was over there. And I'm like, um, "Y'all, come on! I'm so I'm just so amped up. I'm like, y'all, come on, let's go run a call. We gotta evacuate. They have hurricane coming." And everybody looked at me stupid. They're like, "All right, we're <laughs> gonna go run a call because we have that kind of money to go in, <laughs> out of town, and we got that kind of money to do that kind of stuff." like being sarcastic about it, and I'm like, damn, I forgot we poor. I promise you, that's what I thought in my head. Like, I forgot we were poor. And were there people who were able to get out, who had a car, or could... Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember, I remember that day, I was sitting outside, and a lot of people just, it's just a lot of people running from their house to their car, from their house to their car, just throwing stuff in there, throwing stuff in there, trying to hurry up and get out before the traffic get too hectic. That was a handful of people, and everybody else was just sitting there watching, watching how people leaving, and they got to stay. Because I know that's what I was thinking when I seen people leaving. I'm like, they leaving, and I got to stay. And it's not even optional. I have to stay. Ashley rode up the storm at her father's house in Jefferson Parish, across the river from New Orleans, where the rest of her family was. There wasn't too much flooding there, so the next morning, they went out and found all the scrap wood they could blown down branches, old fences, and started a fire to cook the little bit of meat they'd been able to buy at the store before the storm came. They figured that would hold them until rescuers got there. But one day passed and no one came, and then two days. They had no TV. They didn't know what was going on. I thought, like, just like my daddy, I thought, like my dad, somebody was coming to help us. Nobody came to help us. No Red Cross trucks, no nothing. I mean, at least they could have dropped us some water. You know what it's like to not have water? You get a taste in your mouth that's just, oh, it's horrible. You your mouth all dry and you can't even think right. You start getting delusional and hallucinating about things. Did Did you actually have hallucinations? And, yeah. What did you hallucinate? Water bottles, four water bottles, big Kentwood gallon jugs. I'm serious. I just, I, I went crazy. I mean, I would just sit down and rock and think about 
is 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 the world gonna turn to hell and we all gonna burn? Uh, I I mean I just started going crazy. I'm I'm really crazy. They make you realize like oh so this is what it feels like. This is what it feels like to be starving. <laughs> I thought that when I was um in Jones and Bears, I thought that I was like man I'm starving. <laughs> That's what I say to myself. I'm like man I'm starving. Like you know how your stomach growls. Uh-huh. Like. When you starving, you get cramps in your stomach, and it feel like your stomach just bending into your back. And you just—I mean, the best bet is for you to lean forward. Uh, how how scared were you? I thought I was gonna die. I mean, I, I look at it like this now. Nine Eleven was bad because it was terrorists. You know, there's no surprise people hate the United States. It's no big surprise. Mm-hmm. I mean, but New Orleans was worse because it was our own government who betrayed us. They betrayed us. They betrayed us. Like, they left us there to die. And then you hear George Bush telling the FEMA, man, you're doing a good job. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Because, I mean, people are dying there. So you telling him he's doing a good job, what you saying? Like, that's good, the people dying? I never understood that, and I really wish I could meet him to ask him, what do you mean by that? He's doing a good job. 18-year-old Ashley Nelson talking with Alex Bloomberg. Two days after that interview, the head of FEMA, the FEMA man, Michael Brown, who President Bush said was doing such a good job, was removed from all duties relating to Hurricane Katrina. That old saying, them that's got... Are them that gets it's something I can't see If you gotta have something Before you can get something How do you get your first is still a mystery to me I see folk with long cars and fine clothes That's why they're called the smarter set Because they manage to get only them that's got supposed to get And I ain't got nothing yet Act 4, Diaspora well, hundreds of thousands of Gulf residents evacuated after the storm and followed the whole thing from afar Cheryl Wagner left for Gainesville, Florida From satellite photos, she can tell her house is flooded She hears it's seven feet of water Over this past week, we've gotten dozens of emails at our radio program from people in this situation, and they all pretty much say the same thing, how bizarre it is to be indefinitely exiled from their homes, normal lives, and now to be an evacuee in the larger world. We've been advised that when we go back to New Orleans, my boyfriend and I need to get guns, mean dogs, or both, which seems ludicrous to me. But people where we evacuated to over here in north-central Florida have offered us a shotgun. We got offered a shotgun before we got offered a generator. One of the people calling to tell us to get a shotgun is a normally laid-back musician friend who used to have a weekly gig in the quarter singing Cuban love songs in falsetto. A few days ago, he bought a shotgun in Baton Rouge, where he evacuated to, and is now calling my boyfriend and advising us to do the same. I have five dogs, and I'm bringing the meanest-looking one back, he says. I just bought a shotgun with his sweet pistol grip. Last week, he also called to report rumors that people from New Orleans were raping and looting the mall in Baton Rouge. You're a person from New Orleans, I thought, but didn't say. (music) 
Right after it became clear we were not getting home, I predicted the totally predictable. That people in Baton Rouge would immediately start cringing in the face of what they considered to be the black mongrel hordes and loose people of New Orleans. I say this knowing the people of Baton Rouge and the rest of Louisiana have been breaking their backs with generosity and hospitality and kindness. I know many white and Cajun people and fishermen with airboats helped rescue their black and white New Orleans neighbors from addicts. People from Baton Rouge are showing up at hotels and sweetly paying strangers from New Orleans bills. My mother in Hammond was asked to open up her washing machine to state troopers' underwear. Still, some folks are giving with one hand and holding a gun with the other. It seems nobody wants a bunch of poor people, black, white, Cajun, whatever, moving to their neck of the woods. Seems it is fear of the have-nots and poor as much as racism, which of course it also is. So now we're here in Gainesville, listening to New Orleans expat news radio webcasts through tinny computer speakers, squinting to see my watery house on satellite photos, getting crappy emails from friends crying because they killed their cats, and watching TV. Someone desperate called us and said, Can you please text message Stan and make him get off his roof? He's up there with Luna and another dog and won't come down unless they'll take the dogs, too. It's strange to think of all my New Orleans people spit out by the storm, all over the South and country, in diaspora, getting terrible phone calls and cable TV migraine, too. Before the flood, New Orleans was the place where Southerners sent their laid-back people who can't or won't get with the program. Artists, gay relatives, eternal optimists, funny hat wearers, and intellectuals. I'm one of the above, and we're in New Orleans for a reason. To get away from the Baptists, but still get to live in the South, where we're from. But where are Southern outsiders supposed to go, who are exiled from their place of exile? I don't want to arm myself with a gun or a leaf blower to face the future. People ask what it's like to lose your house and your friends and your life and your town and begin to look scared when you answer. They want to care, but they can't. They look at you and worry for themselves. Drenched in the compulsory cheer of the college town of Gainesville, I feel like a leper from Carville or the bereaved at a southern funeral. Family friends slide you white envelopes with money in them. Then everyone around you puts on an ugly orange and blue outfit, straps on their foam fingers, and heads out to a Florida Gators football game. Cheryl Wagner normally lives in New Orleans in Mid-City on South Cortez Street. She asked if someone there has a canoe. Please go and check out her house. Act 5. Displaced Persons Camp. Last August, a Category 4 storm. Hurricane Charlie devastated parts of Florida. And FEMA built a big trailer park for people whose homes were destroyed. It was near an airport outside Punta Gorda. At one point, over 550 trailers were there. And when our staff looked into it this week, we were surprised to find out that a full year later, over 500 trailers are still there with more than 1,000 people. And also, just this week, we read that in the New York Times, a FEMA official was saying that these kinds of mobile homes, like in Punta Gorda, outside Punta Gorda, may be the standard for people displaced by Hurricane Katrina. Our producer, Lisa Pollock, called down there to see what it's like. Like almost everybody I asked to describe the FEMA mobile home park, Bob Hebert starts with a disclaimer. It is better than no housing, but for some folks, it's very unsettling, it's depressing, it's deplorable. Hebert is the director of hurricane recovery for Charlotte County, Florida. Like everyone else I talked to, he described a dreary mini-city, 
nothing but endless rows of identical white trailers in a vacant lot by the county airport. But it, it very much is just like a trailer park uh, storage place. It's like a manufacturer where they're just all lined up waiting to go, except these are actually occupied and, and hooked up, and it's a, it's a village by itself. It looks kind of like uh, some military camp in the desert. This is Jennifer. She didn't want to give her last name. She, along with her husband, three kids, and a dog, have lived in the FEMA park since just before last Thanksgiving. There's no grass. There's no trees. It's all white, gritty sand. And uh, the wind will whip through the trailers, and you'll just get pelted with sand. The FEMA park wasn't supposed to be homey. It was functional. After Hurricane Charlie destroyed 11,000 residences in the county, lots of people needed places to live, and fast. For that, the trailers were perfect, says Hebert. Because they got a lot of people in there in, in like 30 days, people that were just kind of living in cars because there were no other places for them to go. They were on the streets or they were living with other people or uh, whatever. So, I mean, it was, it was a lifesaver when it happened. Someone called me from FEMA and said, are you still interested in one of the mobile homes? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, okay, you need to go down there to the site tomorrow to sign your paperwork. They have a house for you. That's Kim. Last December, when she got that phone call, she was desperate and out of options. She, her husband, and four kids rode out the hurricane, huddled in the shower stall of their rental house, the ceilings crumbling above them. After the house was condemned, the family spent two weeks in a crowded homeless shelter. Then came three months in an RV, the kind people tow on vacation, 30 feet long, all six of them living there. So by the time they got the FEMA mobile home, 70 feet long, with three bedrooms, it seemed like a mansion. They could live rent-free, paying only utilities while they looked for a place of their own. The problem is, nine months later, Kim's family is still there. Every month, a FEMA agent comes by to ask her what she's done to get out. To keep her lease, she has to prove she's been working on it. And every month, she gives the same answer. She's called public housing, she's combed the ads. But in Charlotte County, there's not much that she and her husband, a Walmart manager, can afford. So far, the government's let her stay. But the pressure's getting to her. These people that come to our house and they are on us about, you know, what are you doing to get a place and what are you doing to do this and what are you doing to do that? And, you know, it really just irritates a lot of us because, you know, we didn't ask for this and we're stuck here and there's nothing else that we can do. And the way they talk to you, it only almost makes you feel like, you know, you did this to yourself. Well, the, the real problem you have is that most of the rental properties were, were lost in the storm. That includes almost all the low-income units, says Bob Hebert of the county government. The ones that survived suddenly became more expensive and unaffordable because other people that had the means to pay for them uh, rented those properties. So it's, a, it's a, a very long-term problem because unless we can find a way to house those folks in some housing that they can afford, they're going to have to move somewhere else where they can get a house and they can get a job. Some places don't want kids. Jennifer's had problems finding a place, too. We have a dog, and uh, now finding a place that will let us have the dog. I mean, I know some people, you know, don't understand, but, you know, like, oh, just get rid of the dog and move into, you know, one of the apartments that accept dogs. But after everything my children have been through, moving to two different schools, moving four times in the past year, with everything else they've lost, I couldn't imagine taking their dog away, too. Crime and drugs have been a problem at the FEMA park and there aren't many places for kids to play. Lots of people stay only because they have no choice. And others, everyone I talked to agreed, aren't really trying that hard. It's easy to imagine that this is what Louisiana could look like a year from now. 
thousands of people warehoused in trailers, stuck in makeshift camps on the edges of towns. I asked Bob Hebert if he worries about the idea of more FEMA trailer parks like this one, and he says he does. I think what, what needs to happen is that if, if they're going to do that, which, which they, they will, and, and it, it's a good short-term solution, they need to think about what happens next month or the month after and like have, have a, a phase two plan. They've got to very quickly start working on a strategy to, to break that down and move people on just for the sake of the people. I mean, it, it, I mean what we're really talking about is, is humanity here. We're talking about uh, human beings that, that need to get back to some normalcy before they can get over this. So how long is FEMA willing to keep housing hurricane victims? In Punta Gorda, they're giving residents till February, 18 months after the storm. Then, FEMA says, they'll stop funding the trailer park. After that, what happens is up to the county, which is still figuring out what to do. It might help people buy their trailers and relocate them, and it might keep the park open and let people rent. It's not clear exactly how it'll work or where the money will come from. It's not going to be easy. Lisa Pollock. Sitting here in limbo Waiting for the tide to flow Sitting here in limbo Knowing that I have to go our program is produced today by Julie Snyder, Sarah Kenning, and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Diane Cook, Jane Feltis, Amy O'Leary, and Lisa Pollock. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production out from Todd Bachman, Chris Ladd, and Laura Bellows. It is Laura's last day on the program, which is a very, very bad day for us because she's done such good work here. Laura, we all wish you the best. Guest DJing for our program today from Mr. Nick Spitzer, whose music show American Roots normally broadcasts out of New Orleans. He chose songs for us from his exile. Other musical help from Jessica Hopper. Special thanks today to so many people. Margie Rockland, Stephen Elliott, Alex Kotloitz, Christy Kruger, Lisa Moore, Richard Burkert, Harry Scheiber, Davey Rothbard, Eden Wormfeld, Abram Himmelstein, Anya Borg, Justin Lundgren, Kirsta Kurtz-Burke, Aaron Zimmerman, Anjali Raspberry, and Michelle Gibo-Mott, and really too many people to name, friends of the program and strangers who emailed us with stories and suggestions this week. Thank you to you all. You know, you can download today's program and our archives at audible.com slash thisamericanlife. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by Volkswagen of America and Hill Hold Assist. Appreciated by anybody named Zizivis. It's just one of 120 not-so-standard features found on the all-new German-engineered Passat. Learn more at newpassat.com. By pals.com, the planet's neighborhood bookstore, featuring author interviews, essays, staff recommendations, and used, new, and rare books on the web at pals.com. WB Easy Management Oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia, who's had favorites here at the radio station who were not me. Just the cutest ding-dang kids that would call me auntie. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. Do you know what it means to miss New Orleans and miss it each night and day? PRI Public Radio International.